0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. You're listening to episode 101. And in this podcast, we're going to explore the disconnects in human capital development. This is a crucial issue for family enterprises, closely held businesses, and startups looking to take their business to the next level. To no one's surprise, COVID, remote learning, and work from home have had massive impacts on the development of students, business plans, workers, and executives. To help us think through these issues, I'm going to speak with Deirdre Koppelman of Pear Core Solutions. Since founding Pair in 2003, Deirdre has worked closely with business owners, senior level executives, and organizational teams across a variety of industries. We talk about a variety of issues facing higher education, ways to improve the HR industrial complex, and the new employer-employee dynamic. Finally, we discuss the need to update the study of people's hardwiring at the educational and workplace levels. Deirdre, welcome aboard.
1: Thank you, Fraser. Fantastic to be here with you and appreciate the opportunity more than anything.
0: Well, I'm appreciative. We have had a couple phone calls and I am fascinated by your process and we're going to get into that in a little bit. But help us lay out what is important for people to understand about how executives perform well and how workforces are put together and where you see problems along that line.
1: Let's talk about performance and success, and a lot of buzzwords, employee engagement, and of course, the huge problem with disengagement, which leads to what we're in now a little bit, great resignation. So for moons, organizational well-being has been tied to key workplace performance indicators and metrics, and you can be successful but that doesn't mean that you're engaged. And there's something to be said for, I'm not engaged because I don't have the resources that I need to get my job done well. I'm not engaged because my commute is horrible. I'm not engaged because my leader is not a leader. I don't have mentoring. There's a lot of reasons why people are not engaged at all levels. I'm not speaking specific to an executive or a lower level. So the fingers are usually pointed outward. And very rarely, and this is what I've seen over the last 30 years, really hasn't improved enough, whereby we have to look at what is the self. How do I know what will make me happy if I'm not self-aware? How do I know what direction to go in if I'm not self-aware? Where are the tools to help me become more self-aware? Whether that's before I'm engaged in a career or I'm in a workplace, where is the time spent on, am I in the right job? Am I at the right workplace? So you can see a lot of success, but you don't necessarily see a lot of what I would call engagement. There was a Gallup poll recently where it's some outrageous number, we'll say pre-COVID, It's at least 80% of the entire U.S. workforce that is not engaged in their workplace and in their work. So when you look at performance,
0: they're tied. So one of the things that was interesting that we talked about before, and it seems like the HR industrial complex and organizational management and corporate America and even the educational world, they pour a ton of time and resources into gauging aptitude and then they pour a ton of time and resources into gauging, let's call it social interactivity. But they don't get into the hardwiring of what works for the individual, whether it's learning style or I think where we're going with this, their doing or executing style. Is that a correct appraisal or is that something that I'm noticing through some of our discussions that is in the fog?
1: Fraser, that's an accurate assessment. So there's the cognitive part of our brain where IQ sets, the aptitude, and that's obviously important. And that has been a focus. There's the affective, emotional intelligence that's become more trendy. And it's part of the whole organizational science. So when you're focusing on somebody's psychological well-being or putting resources towards that, and the reason why you would put resources towards that is because there's a proven relationship with job satisfaction and relationship dynamics and overall occupational success when you invest to understand more of the affective or emotional aspects of somebody's style.
0: Is that a function of just because they weren't studying it before, it's a low baseline? And so now that you've done a little bit on it, it's like, well, okay, we didn't put two people who hate each other in the same room. Therefore, they're going to be more productive. (laughs)
1: I can go back, before I owned my own business, I was an employee at very large companies, organizations, some small startup, it didn't matter. And so I saw dysfunction 30 years ago, and I'm sure there was dysfunction 50 years ago. What was interesting, and I can go back at least the 30 years, is there would be an investment of time and resources to understand personality. Let's just put it that way. A lot of personality tests out there. And inevitably, there would be a management consultant who would come in and at certain levels, director levels and above, you'd take some assessments and then you would get a report and that was it. It would go into your drawer. I often wondered, so what are they doing with this information? Because nothing changed for me. Why are we doing this if this is not meaningful? And more importantly, where's the action? What is the point of doing this if we're not acting on it? So. Over time, certainly there's been a little more, does this personality mesh with this one? However, that hasn't changed the percentage of people who are disengaged. So you might get along with your teammates, we hope, even though there's still a tremendous amount of drama in the workplace, which is a whole other topic I'd be happy to share with you. Real drama, victims, bullies, heroes, there's a whole science behind that, but it's still not working. So it's almost as if, okay, I do get along better with my teammate, but I'm still not really engaged. So it becomes what's missing. We're not doing enough. And really, if you look, how many companies are doing anything? It's fascinating because the tools are out there, as you know. I put you through some of the tools that we use, and I've spent years researching and really trying to find the combination, the recipe of tools to use that address all parts of a human in a workplace, not just their aptitude, not just will they get along with somebody. But more importantly, as you and I have touched on, how are they hardwired to actually do things? Nobody's looking at that.
0: We went through the experience, and I had some aha moments. And I've been through these things before, and there are aha moments. But I was really struck because it certainly confirmed a lot of things that I had suspected about myself, and confirmed the subconscious that was causing me to take actions in reaction to different work environments that either didn't make sense to me or were unpleasant or what have you. This cognitive, let's call it, motive operation test that I've not seen really elsewhere in my experience. Maybe talk about that a little bit. What does it do? And then what can we glean from that that can be useful going forward?
1: Sure. So in order to really answer the question, let's dial it back a second and look at three different dimensions to our minds. So you have the cognitive, which is IQ, And there are IQ tests that are still used inside companies. And it makes sense sometimes. But the IQ piece, that's one piece of the mind. Then when you add the affective part, which is traits and characteristics and what motivates somebody, how they like to learn their stress triggers, their emotional intelligence, the feeling part. So you have cognitive as the thinking and you have affect As the feeling. The third dimension that very few people know about, let alone contest for, is the conative, which is literally how we are hardwired to do something. So when you look at the three parts, obviously the three parts of the mind all work together. And when there's focus on just one or two and you're leaving one out, we're missing a huge opportunity. And Whereas the affect can be measured, there are so many assessments. We have some of our favorites, I would say. And IQ, right, when we need to, we test IQ. But for the conative, there's only one test that can be used to identify how an individual is uniquely hardwired to take action. It's instinct. So if you're given a task to do, which we are given and need to do every day, how we go about doing whatever it is that we need to do this is never changing this is from minute 1 nanosecond 1 that is our unique ability that's what we bring to the table that's what makes us different however the challenge is what we know about ourselves especially when we're younger isn't too much and the things that we know to be ourselves you don't realize that that's what makes you different had i known more about my cognitive unique abilities, first of all, it would have taken me a shorter amount of time to get to where I am now. I would have had much more engagement in what I was doing because I would have been able to articulate what my unique ability is and how I need to do things. In a macro level, it's a tolerance tool. So many times you get frustrated whether you're working with somebody on a team or even somebody in your family. Why can't you do it this way? Why can't you do it my way? Or this is the way we need you to do it. Well, that's not going to fly. And that is a major component as to why people are not engaged and they leave. They leave, they hop, they skip, they're out until they find the place and space where they can utilize their unique abilities, which is the conative.
0: I've seen it in the family business orientation where you've got all sorts of, let's call it effective baggage. You have people with different IQs. I've not seen the conative part work particularly well. I haven't seen it used, A, but I haven't seen an acknowledgement of how people do tasks. It's been sort of couched in terms of, oh, how we communicate. And that's not it to me that where a lot of wreckage between families around a business that there could be a lot of improvement in understanding by using some of these tools maybe break down this conative part a little bit more. What exactly are you testing for?
1: We break it down into what I'll call four action modes. So the first action mode is pretty easy to understand. And that is how much information does an individual need to gather, to share before they can do what they need to do. And there's a continuum and there's no right amount or wrong amount of energy in this action mode, whatever it is, it is. The most important part is that you're using it the way you've been born with it. So for example, I'll use my own children. Let's say we were in a family business. So my oldest daughter, very, very deep amount of energy in fact-finding. I'm somewhere in the middle. I need essential information. My daughter, who's 28 today, happy birthday, Carly, she needs even less than I do. So we actually occupy three different operating zones just within how much information we need. But here's the synergy because of our differences. So I might come up with an idea and say, girls, I'm thinking about taking you on vacation and I'm thinking maybe Santa Monica. My daughter, who has a lot of fuel, in Fact her. her natural auto response is hand up, I'll look into it. That's just her instinctive do, and off she goes. She does a deep dive and comes back with more information about Santa Monica than I, quite frankly, am interested in, but that's okay. She was able to be her. She enjoyed doing that research. She did it really well, made her happy. She was engaged in it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm saying, great, I didn't have to do that deep dive. I don't want to, and I don't need to. I'm not hardwired where I need that much information. I basically skim for the essential information. Thank you very much. My other daughter, who has less of a need for a lot of information, just tell me where to show up. So if the three of us worked on a team, that's ideal synergy, which points out that how you're hardwired, especially on a team, is that you can leverage how somebody is hardwired because they will enjoy doing the task, they will do it well, and you won't have to do it if that's not how you are hardwired. So you're leveraging unique abilities. Sometimes I look at teams and I see what's called cloning, where you might have eight liters, 10 liters, whatever the size of the team is, and you might have a disproportionate amount of 80% of the team, 90% of the team, 100% of the team perhaps is hardwired like my oldest daughter. So they need a ton of information before they will do whatever it is that they have to do, which can lead to what? First of all, that's inertia. It's analysis paralysis. Nobody really ever has enough information. So you need other unique abilities in this one action mode just to balance it out and create the synergy on a team. And it's no different if that team is siblings or different generations. I work with many family businesses it doesn't matter. What matters is that you know, one, that you know how you're uniquely hardwired because then you can ask the proper questions about a position, about a task. How much freedom do you have to be you, to do what you need to do the way you need to do it? It absolves the drama and the results. You can't beat the results. Through the pandemic, I've watched more movies and documentaries than I ever have in my entire life. So Netflix is my friend as well. Once you understand cognitive language, you can point it out in any entertainment. So, for example, there's an action mode called follow-through. Not to be confused with how well does somebody follow up and follow through. But the follow-through action mode is the need for structure, process, step by step by step by step. Or, I need five assistants because I have no need to manage my calendar. There's a widespread there. And I forgot which documentary I was watching where you'll hear somebody say, I need to have everything lined up. I need a checklist. What's the plan? I need a plan. That's conative language. And I've also seen on leadership teams where when that unique ability is missing, There's lots of ideas, but there's very little execution or choppy execution. So there's four action modes. The next action mode is called quick start. You and I are um, somewhat similar there. To some degree, it's about how quickly somebody needs to do something, but it's really related to creativity and experimentation. So I have a lot of fuel in that tank, as do you. And had I known this when I was In college and interviewing for jobs, I would have asked different questions about the company. So, somebody who's got a lot of creative energy and who starts things naturally by brainstorming is probably not going to be very engaged if they don't have the opportunity to brainstorm. So, I worked for very large companies, companies that were behemoths that had been around for not quite a century, but close to it. And so creating change in those types of companies, it was like trying to change the course of the Titanic single-handedly. So that was very frustrating for me. At 24, 25, could I put my finger on it and say, this is why I'm not engaged here? I was
0: bored. We talked about that with my experience in law school where there were lots of parts of law school that I really liked and I found it very nourishing. But then the actual practice of law... I was like, I can't go from A to B to C to D to E to F to Z in that order in this amount of time with this process. I just veer off. I turn off. I got bored. And I figured that out pretty soon. It was in my third year of law school where I said, well, this isn't going to be it for me. <laughs> but did you know why? No, and I didn't. That was the problem. That's
1: the problem. So if you don't know why, how can you prevent the, ed- the how you're hardwired from connecting with you throughout the rest of your career. You will spend time and effort, as I'm sure you did, until you found your lane. Our purpose is to make sure we are using our fuel, how we are hardwired to literally do, that conative piece is just as important as, if not more important, than salary, than really any other kind of success. Every individual, and I have allocated over 4,000 of these assessments inside family businesses, C-suite, across the country, different industries. And for all 4,000 plus individuals, it becomes, aha, it explains so many things to the individual, but then when you start to piece it out and work with the information in an organization, that's where the results come in, not just for the individual, of course, but for the company.
0: And if you're a manager, to not have this, I don't know how you manage someone effectively if you don't have that information. You're intuiting it or guessing it, and there may not be buy-in at the other end with the person being managed, and it's crazy. Just to keep moving forward, what's the fourth pillar? So the fourth
1: action mode is called implementer. Sometimes confusing. It could be how we implement, but it's literally the use of implements. So tools, tangibles. And what's fascinating, so I've done this so many times, so I will get a group together, and now I'm going to put all four action modes together. And I'll take my highest fact finder, my highest follow-through, my highest quick start, my highest implementer. I ask them to leave the room, and then I ask everybody else just observe what happens when I bring them back. They come back, I have them face a wall and on a table. I have what we call glop shop. It's uh, about 100 unrelated items that are basically junk. Anything from marbles to clothespins and Legos, just junk piled on a table. And I ask each person to turn around. They're not working as a team. They're working independently. And I tell them, with the objects on the table, you have two minutes to create a children's toy, let's just say. I blow a whistle. Every time I have done this, everywhere I have done this, doesn't matter what city, what state, the high fact finder, whoever that may be, their first is to look. They don't necessarily touch. Maybe they'll pick up one object, look at it, put it down, or they'll stand back and they'll just sort of observe before they do anything. The high follow through inevitably will choose either the Legos, very systematized or they start separating out like items on the table. So they'll take the marbles and they start gathering all the marbles together and they'll put all of the thread together and they'll put all of the marshmallow, whatever. So they start now segmenting. That's their to-do. That's their conative right there. Then you look at the highest quick start who will not even look at what's on the table, will dive onto the table pick up random things you don't even know what they're doing and start creating something immediately. And then the highest implementer without fail chooses the things that you can actually build something with. It's a leap of faith for me because when I go into a team and I do this, I've never met these people before. All I know is how they are cognitively hardwired. That's it. So it's like Mary Poppins coming in with a crystal ball because I can predict time and time again. And sometimes it feels a little risky because I say to myself, "Oh, I hope, you know, but after you do this enough times, it is consistent and it blows people away. Now, how do you use that in a workplace? You create task forces. I once went into a law firm and the partners cognitively, obviously high IQs, affectively a little different. One was much more extroverted. The other was more introverted. Cognitively. They were hardwired very similarly in the follow-through action mode, which meant systems. They like to have systems, but they don't really want to do anything to improve systems and processes. So they had been partners for 13 years. They said, you know, we'd really like a new system for new client intake. We've been using the same system for 13 years. So we know, which is the IQ cognitive... That we want this, want affective, and, but neither one of us wants to spend the time, the energy to do it. So I looked at everybody in the firm, gave everybody a conative assessment. It didn't matter if they were there for three years, three months, male, female, legal, secretary, another associate, a law clerk, mailroom, didn't matter. I gave everybody this conative assessment. I pulled all the people who were high follow-throughs, high process people. It's how they are naturally. And I put them into the conference room. So here's what happens. One, you break down silos. People who would never work together are now working together as a team. There's an opportunity there. Two, I now give them the task. Rich and Andy would like to create a new system. These people were, let me at it. So they're now doing something that they are naturally hardwired to do. They're going to do it well. Rich and Andy don't have to do it. The result is outstanding, and now you've created a workplace where you've broken down a whole bunch of silos, economic silos, a tenure, all of these things, and that is engagement. That is a retention strategy right there.
0: Why don't schools, HR departments, et cetera, use this? The amount of, in my life and career, let's call it wasted time and effort and resources, making what turns out to be unaware decisions, you extrapolate that across a talent base and a population, we could be doing lots of things a lot better and we could be creating a mode of engagement to lift people up. Where is the disconnect? This isn't new, but I don't understand how people don't use this more.
1: It is so frustrating. So let's start with the schools. I'm sure it's a matter of money with the schools, right? They have budgets. And I'll even say in the high schools, I gave these assessments to both of my daughters when they were each 17 years old. One is now today 28 and the other one is 30. And they live it every day. So in high school, I think it's probably about budget. I think what's sad is when I look at individuals in college and especially recent college grads, The focus has been, I think, skewed to this well-rounded education, liberal arts. And so they come out without a passion and a direction, but there hasn't been enough time spent on self-awareness. Individuals from your teens to your 20s, I mean, you're just still trying to figure it out. If you don't know about you, how can anybody else know about you?
0: And how do you know what to ask for? Then you really are, in a sense, a slave to other people's expectations because you haven't any idea what yours are and how they align with your pluses and minuses.
1: It's a gap. You don't know what you don't know. I'm so passionate about this, as you know, and you know why. I started trying to get this into colleges and universities for free. I was doing leadership classes for undergraduates and graduate students who used the information as they were interviewing and were told on interviews that they got the position because they never met such a self-aware 20-something.
0: I think we both agree that upper high school and colleges would be a very useful tool for the person. Now, for the business and the organization in the interview process and the onboarding and the management process, it's nowhere either, not in anything that I've really seen. I'm sure it may happen in upper levels, but even then I'm not sure necessarily pervasive. What's the disconnect there? Let's assume the money in most places is available and a willingness to develop talent. Why ignore something that causes so much theoretically positive organizational improvement?
1: Unfortunately, recruitment strategies, talent acquisition for many companies is not necessarily handled by somebody who's skilled in talent acquisition or recruitment strategies. Let's bypass those people. So they just don't know what they don't know. If you look at the HR professionals, HR has not had a true seat at the strategy table, not for a long enough period of time. Maybe now HR was looked at as human capital and part of the strategy and the footprint of an organization. They're also not fully staffed people are still looking at HR or human capital talent as it's not a profit center. So I don't know that it's a reluctance. I don't know that it's an awareness either. How much time do any of these professionals have to research what is available? A lot of people tend to go back to what has been done in the past. There's not a lot of entrepreneurial thinking that's encouraged So, it's sort of like those companies that I worked for. It's the same story internally. I see internal strife where you have people who do have ideas that want to be future focused and be better at talent acquisition and the growth of human capital, and they're not given the money or the leaders, the C suite, not interested.
0: You may not see the results for multiple quarters or multiple years or even a market cycle. And so, that's a big long-term bet for organizations that may just be so focused on the short-term thinking, quarter-to-quarter results, et cetera, that that disconnect is tough to overcome.
1: True. And I would say you can see results right away. We spend so much time and money on the recruitment process. It's not easy. Bad hires are a disaster and they happen left and right. And part of that, of course, is because the person who's being interviewed doesn't know enough about themselves to ask the proper questions. And the people who are interviewing are focused perhaps just on skill and a couple of great affective questions. So the hiring process is flawed in most places. We, my team, we literally create success plans based on an individual's cognitive hardwiring. So that from the get-go, when they are hired, They know what's expected of them. They know what success looks like, but they're also given the freedom to do certain tasks the way they are cognitively hardwired to do them. So you could see retention is better. You can see engagement is better. And then what happens is there's the trickle into the team dynamics. When people are happy, you want to be around them. There's less drama.
0: Well, and when they're happy, they work toward a core purpose. The jibber-jabber around being selfish and some of those other issues, I'm not going to say it melts away, but it's reduced, I think, and the anchor that drama causes just seems to be less, at least in the experiences I've been, when people end up rowing in the same direction.
1: When an individual is truly happy, and happy is such a
0: foo-foo word
1: sometimes, but fulfilled, they are succeeding because they are empowered i mean there are affective aspects to how to increase the success and happiness of your employees we can't ignore that so empowerment and trust and those types of pieces of the equation are equally important but if you don't allow because you don't know but you could know do you want to know i want every person on the planet to have this
0: so let's pivot for a second The concept of the great resignation and work from home and everything that COVID has, my friend Jim O'Shaughnessy has called the great reshuffle. In many ways, COVID has either magnified or brought to light many things that were simmering under the surface. How do you analyze the impact of those concepts in the modern workforce? A, how do you analyze it? And then B, what are you thinking about in terms of helping organizations move forward?
1: So this has been an interesting learning experience for both employees and employers, aside from the pandemic, being the pandemic and the health crisis. This shift, first to lockdown, then hybrid, possibly back to working from home. And now what's happened is we're going into year three and you can't go back. So companies who are, embracing the disruption are finding that they have opportunities. Of course, hiring from wherever you want to now because you're allowing people to work remotely. And there's a lot of benefit to not being limited to a geographical area for recruitment, especially in a market where it's so hard to hire. So for companies, the difficulty in Of course, technology and operations and being set up properly so that people can work remotely. Of course, that's an obvious, but there's a lot of resistance, again, because we haven't done it this way before. How do I trust that you'll actually be doing your job? So there's a lot of, on the employer side, we want everybody here so we can see you. Now, I'm not going to dismiss the fact that being in person and collaborating together, and there's, of course, great benefit to it. On the flip side, the productivity and the empowerment and the hours that employees are gaining, the time, cutting out two to three hours of commutation, having the flexibility to take a child to school, throw in laundry, and then work until eight, nine, 10 o'clock, whatever it is to get it done because you're raising your own self to a level of responsibility, accountability we're trying to create a culture of accountability. How do you get a culture of accountability? You must give trust. (laughs) You must inspect what you expect. So the challenge I see is more for the employer than it is the employee in the hybrid and or remote. I mean, we've been remote since March of 2020. I never, ever thought we could all be remote. And I can say I can never imagine being back in an office. See, here's where it won't work. It won't work if you are absent, because that doesn't work whether you're all together physically or not. There are things that you need to be aware of. So we have team huddles every morning, 15 minutes. We have team huddles in the afternoon. We're seeing more of each other. We're communicating more with each other. And when we're on a Zoom, yes, there is Zoom burnout or Skype or whatever you want to say, but we're 100% present. We're not multitasking, looking at email. There's a level of accountability and being present with each other that takes effort. But if you put the effort in, it can be very successful for the employee, for sure, but also for the employer. It's just this resistance of, I can't operate this way. There's a lot of resistance.
0: This is the way it's always been done. My compensation and my success occurred under these conditions that existed for the previous two plus decades, and now you're completely shifting it, and I don't trust it.
1: <laughs> Think about the yellow taxis in New York City, the disruption to the TLC with rideshare. They didn't see it coming. They never thought in a million years that a yellow cab would be anything but the mode of transportation for people looking for rides in Manhattan. They were taken by surprise. They refused to change. They refused to look within disaster. So now take it to a much larger environment, which is the country. Now it's all companies. It's not just a segment. It's not just a vertical. It's all companies. We have choices. Let's not forget the power of choice. We have choices. We can experiment. We can try and say, you know what? rather than sticking our feet in cement and saying, absolutely not. Well, what are you doing? You're allowing your talent to go someplace else. (laughs) That's allowing them to work from home for your competitor. And I'm seeing a lot of that as well. I'm not a black and white person. That's the affective part of my personality. I like to keep an open mind. It's also my quick start. I like to experiment. So I'm willing to say, what does this look like? Let's try it. And here's what success looks like. Inspect what you expect. Here's what success looks like. If you know what success looks like, we'll be managing to these metrics. If you make that happen, I don't care where you are.
0: As we wind down here, what are the couple of things you think we should be watching out for in the future? Something that you're seeing in the workplace that you think is a trend that isn't obvious yet?
1: So the trend that I have seen for 30 years that is not changing, and I don't know why I'm one of the few that see this but we have to address the fact that individuals in high school individuals in college need to be given the opportunity to learn more about themselves self-awareness 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 that's not mean entitlement that does not mean selfishness that means know yourself because nobody else can know you until you know you and we are failing And that is not changing, and that is not new to me. In the workplace, we're faced with opportunities. I look at challenges as opportunities, Fraser. Give your teams, give the people in your workplaces the opportunity to leverage themselves. They come with unique abilities. Do you know them? Do they know them? Do you know how to use them, leverage them for the company, leverage them, engagement and disengagement. I would say a trend that I think will come out of this is perhaps engagement actually increases with the shift to hybrid workplaces. I haven't really thought about it, but as somebody who sees lots of holes like Swiss cheese, I bet we will see higher levels of engagement because as I mentioned earlier, when you're looking at 80% disengagement,
0: Low bar to go over.
1: <laughs> exactly. But I have a feeling that we might see higher engagement. However, talent acquisition is the struggle.
0: It makes sense. The war for talent is only just starting.
1: Correct. And then I go back to, if you don't give your people the opportunity to grow, clear career paths, it's more than just how well you get along with Johnny on the team. That's important too. But what does my future look like here? Do I have the creativity to explore? This is an area now we have a lot more time when we're working from home. You need to keep these individuals engaged, challenged, learning opportunities. The more you know about them, the better off you'll be. But I think you'll see engagement higher the more
0: people that work from home. Deirdre, this is fascinating. We could probably talk for four hours with each other about where things are going and what to watch out for. In the meantime, how do listeners find you and keep in touch?
1: Well, you can always keep in touch by emailing me directly. I'm always happy to receive emails. So my email address is the initial D, the initial K, at pear, spelled like the fruit. So it's P-E-A-R, pearcoresolutions.com. You can email me directly. I'd be happy to answer any question. And or check out our website, which is paircoresolutions.com.
0: I will have all of that on the show notes. Deirdre, thank you very much. I learn something new every time we speak. And I'm very appreciative we met because it's changed my thinking on a lot of things.
1: Fraser, you are a doll. And thank you because this was an unexpected consequence of our introduction and a very happy one. So thank you
0: so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.